Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you again, and uh, nice to have the chance to speak about anything I like, which is what Gemma's told me. So, uh, this morning, I thought we'd have a look at a story that, mm, in the Bible, we often hear a little bit of it, but not many people know about this character, and if you say his name, uh, they can go a little bit blank. So, let's have a look at the whole story of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was a guy who uh, had a lot going for him initially in his life and then went through a period when he really fell into absolute disaster. So we'll have a look at, uh, at what the whole thing is. The story really falls into three bits. First of all, Mephibosheth's story is about the fear of the king. He was scared for his life and I'll tell you why. But the second bit is about the favour of the king. Because the king reacts in a way that Mephibosheth didn't expect. And uh, as Bible scholars and preachers are always pointing out, he showed a little bit of what our king, Jesus, is really all about, rather than what Mephibosheth was expecting. But we'll get to that. The third thing, the final thing, is the failure of the king. Because the king ends this story by doing something which I think is, quite honestly, a bit disappointing. Again, we'll get to that. Let's look at the story anyhow. Mephibosheth is a story that comes in the second book of Samuel. And the first bit of it is about fear. Why? Because Mephibosheth was somebody whose golden future suddenly just crumbled into nothing. Who was he? Well, he was the grandson of King Saul. Saul married a woman called Ahinoam, and the two of them had four kids. They were all boys. Well, they had a couple of girls as well, as I remember, but they had four boys. There was Jonathan, there was Abinadab, there's Malkishua, and there was Ishbosheth, most of whom we will forget straight away, thank goodness, because it's hard to say those names without your teeth in. Anyhow, Jonathan had one son, and that boy was called Mephibosheth. So you can see how important he was. For one thing, if Saul died, Jonathan, the key man, the, 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 the movie star, the, the pin-up boy of the whole nation, would become king and be son of the king. And then, if all went well, when Jonathan died, Mephibosheth was right in line to succeed him. So he lived in Saul's palace in Gibeah, just outside Jerusalem, and everything was fantastic until one day it all went wrong. What happened was this. Let's just put Gibeah on the map. There's Gibeah, which is where the palace was, and uh, that was where uh, Mephibosheth lived. The Philistines, a warlike nation that hated the Israelites, were just a little bit to the west, but um, they didn't usually attack. And then one day they did. And Saul and three of his sons went out to fight them. They fought them up in the north of the country at a place in the Jezreel Valley called Mount Gilboa. And they expected to chase away the invaders back to the sea coast and have no problem. But what actually happened was that Saul and three of his sons were killed. And immediately, Mephibosheth had to leave the palace. Now, he was only five years old at this point, so he didn't know much of what was going on. But his nurse scooped him up, made some hurried present preparations, and they tried to run. And the place they ran to was a place called Lodebar. And as you can see from the little Google Earth picture there, it's not a very promising place even today. Lodebar simply meant not a thing. It sounds quite trendy, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's not a thing. <laughs> it also means no pasture. So it was a place that didn't have a proper name and didn't have the facilities to sustain life either. But it was out in the desert. 
It was a long way from the Philistines. It was a long way from anything else that might be going on politically. And so that would be a good place to be safe. But before they left, there was another little bit of a disaster for Mephibosheth. This is Second Samuel 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. And so that poor little lad fell to the ground in a way that we don't know about, but it was sufficient to lame him for life. His legs wouldn't work anymore. And so he was dragged, probably howling and screaming in pain, out into the desert along a long journey right to the north of the country, not knowing what was happening to him, and they didn't stop to take care of him. They just had to get away, because his life was at risk as well. And so suddenly, everything in Mephibosheth's life had turned right upside down, from being respected and loved and cosseted in the palace, from having a golden future, all of a sudden at five years old, everything had turned right upside down for him. And so for the next few years, he had all sorts of issues. As he grew up, his past life was a problem because he was one of Saul's family. Uh, he was at the mercy of whatever assassination plots and political manoeuvres were going on. That's why he was out in the backside of the desert. Second, his present life was empty. There was nothing much going on for him at all. He was in a, a, a ruined place, unable to move and help himself and uh, totally um, unable to make life worth living. His future didn't look too good either. His future was doubtful. What was going to happen to him? Hang on in this place until he was discovered and then get killed? All he could hope for, surely now, was that they would leave him alone. So all of that gave him very little hope for the future. And that's the way that uh, sometimes life can be for people, isn't it? They try to do it themselves, they try to get out of life whatever they can get, and it looks as if they can make it. It looks as if they can be big, as if they can live the dream, get to the top, do whatever it is they want to do, and it crumbles away. One of the great uh, protest singers of the, the 1960s was a guy called Phil Oakes. He's just become uh, talked about again, which is what this film poster is all about. And you'll see it says he was the most passionate voice of his generation. Well, he certainly wrote some brilliant songs. And he didn't just write about the war in Vietnam and the, the racial issue or so on. He also wrote about the lack of meaning in many people's lives. And he wrote a, a song which haunts me called Flower Lady. And it's a song which is about this woman who goes out into the street and stands in the middle of the busy city street selling her flowers all day long. And uh, as she stands there, people hurry by and nobody's buying flowers from the flower lady. And the verses of the song just talk about the different people who are there and what's going on with them and how in their different ways they're not finding satisfaction in life. The second last verse talks about people who've lived their lives, who are old now. And it says this, Feeble-aged people, almost to their knees, complain about the present, using memories. Never found their pot of gold, wrinkle hands pound weary holes, each line screams out, you're old, you're old, you're old, and nobody's buying flowers from the flower lady. End of the day, final verse of the song, the flower lady packs up and goes home, and the flower lady hobbles home without a sail. Tattered shreds of petals leave a fading trail. Not a pause to hold a rose, even she no longer knows. The lamp goes out, the evening now is closed, and nobody's buying flowers from the flower lady. 
What's life about? That's what the song is asking. And sadly, of course, Phil Oakes never really found out. Because in 1976, having run out of words, having run out of explanations, he took his own life at the age of 35. But lots of people are like that, living in the backside of the desert. And they need to meet the king that you and I know, King Jesus, who can transform their lives. And that's what takes us on to the second part of the story. But let's just remember just what life, the, the, the message that's being sold to us by our generation. Nothing is impossible unless you think it is. If you can dream it, you can do it. Virtually nothing is impossible in this world if you just put your mind to it and maintain a positive attitude. All of these messages again and again, don't dream your life, live your dreams. Freddie Mercury's great statement, you can be anything you want to be. Just turn yourself into anything you think that you could ever be. That easy? Of course it isn't. Believe in yourself and magic will happen. So goes the mantra. You are amazing. You are strong. You are brave. You are wonderful. You can be all those things and still not be a success. And you end your life just clutching at straws. As one great 18th century philosopher said on his deathbed, I have been swallowing smoke. Unless the king picks you up. And that's where we reach the second part of the story which is about the favour of the king. Let's take the story on from where it was. There's Mephibosheth up in the top in Lodibar. You see him in that little yellow circle there. Meanwhile, uh, the politics of the country get a bit complicated. He's got one brother left, a guy called Ishbosheth. Now, when I say brother, he was five when Ishbosheth was 40. So Ishbosheth could really be his granddad, but he was his brother. And so some people took him and made him king in a place called Mahanaim, safe distance from the Philistines, as you will notice. Also a safe distance from the other guy who could be king, and that was David. Now David had married uh, Mephibosheth's auntie Michael, who was one of Saul's daughters, and so he uh, had a claim on the throne as well. Ishbosheth didn't last very much longer. After two years, he was assassinated and he disappeared. At that point, David moved from Hebron, which is where he had his, his palace, up into Jerusalem and made it a new royal city. And as the news filtered north to Lodibar, Mephibosheth must have got more and more worried about what's going on. This king is obviously getting more and more control over the country. It's only a matter of time until his spies find where I am. What's going to happen to me? One of these days, somebody's going to arrive with a dagger and it's going to be goodbye Mephibosheth. What a cruel end to a pointless life. But that wasn't, in fact, what happened. What happened when David became king was this, and this Second 2 Samuel 2. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? We're in chapter 9 now, by the way. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba at your service? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. And so Ziba gives David the word about where Mephibosheth is, and you think, Aha! Goodbye, Mephibosheth. But actually, when Mephibosheth is brought to Jerusalem, this is what happens next. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth? At your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I'll surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, 
or is your servant that should notice a dead dog like me? And so suddenly everything's changed for Mephibosheth. The king breaks, brings him into the palace. He makes him part of the royal family. All of his needs are met. He's gone at a stroke from poverty to plenty, from scratching out a living in the desert to living in the palace and being fed every day. From insignificance to status, from trying to keep it quiet who he actually was, to being somebody who was respected and cared for and looked after. From helplessness to help. From being somebody who was completely reliant on other people to do the simplest thing for him, to having a whole army of people to help him. Ziba had five sons and 20 servants himself, which was unusual for a servant, but he'd obviously been a fairly important servant of King Saul. And so there are all of these people who were told to work for Mephibosheth. He wasn't helpless anymore. He had people coming out of his ears that could do things for him. And fear to friendship. That was the heart of the whole thing, wasn't it? From being scared of the king, worried about what he would do to him, suddenly he was there at the king's table. And that's what's happened to us, isn't it, as Christians? He brought me to his banqueting table, and his banner over me was love. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit, I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. We've been brought back by the king, and that's what gives Christians lives, a purpose and a point and a status that they would never have otherwise, the fact that the king has us back. David didn't have to do it. He had no relationship with Mephibosheth at all, but he plucked him out of nowhere and made him one of the sons of the king. That is what people need to know around us. But you know, David was human, and although he's a picture, a glimpse of what God is like, in that part of the story, by the end of it, I think he's lost it. The failure thing. You see, David wasn't king to the end of his life. There were various uh, plots against him, and at one stage he had to evacuate Jerusalem. There's Jerusalem on the map, and what happened was that one of David's own sons, Absalom, started a rebellion against him, and uh, David left the city, and crossed the Jordan, and went to Mahanaim, where Ishbosheth used to have his court, and there he had a confrontation with the forces of Absalom, his son and the civil war came to a conclusion. Now when David left the city, something very strange went on. He went, he climbed up uh, over the Mount of Olives uh, to go onto the road leading him up to the Jordan and there approaching him was Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant, and he had a whole train of donkeys and with the donkeys there were provisions for David and his army. And David said, oh, this is great, this is very unexpected. He said, no, no, I'm with you, David. I'm with you all the way. And David said, where's Mephibosheth? Ah, well, he thought he'd stay in Jerusalem because they might make him king after all. And David thought, what an insult. What? A... Actually, I think Ziba was simply on the make. Second Samuel never says that Mephibosheth had that in mind. I don't think he did. I'll tell you why in a moment. Uh, it's because of the length of his beard, but that's that, we'll get to that. The important thing is that Ziba... Uh, made David so annoyed that David said, you know all that stuff that Mephibosheth had? All of those lands, everything I gave back to him? It's yours now. You get it when I come back. <laughs> then he went off and uh, he fought the battle against Absalom. He won and he came back in triumph to Jerusalem. He had to cross the Jordan to get there at a place called Gilgal. And when he got to Gilgal, he found that Mephibosheth 
had got himself on a donkey and lame as he was, ridden out to Gilgal to meet David and welcome him back home. And David wasn't best pleased to see him because he believed Ziba's version of it. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, says the Bible, also went down to meet the king. He hadn't taken care of his feet or trimmed his moustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? And Mephibosheth had an answer for that one. He said, My lord the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? And David's not buying this. And David simply says, Why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. And I think Mephibosheth's reply is very, very revealing. Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him take everything, now that my lord the king has returned home safely. Was Mephibosheth uh, trying to rebel against David? I don't think he was. I think he stayed in Jerusalem because he was tricked. Why? Well, because when he comes to see David, you can see he's not cut his hair, he's not uh, trimmed his beard, he's not done anything to his feet, he's not washed since the day that David left. He's deliberately kept himself unkempt so that he'd be thinking about David all the time. Now, you can't conjure that up in five minutes. You can't lengthen your beard magically. Obviously, it had been happening since the moment David went away, and the Bible actually says that. So I can't understand why many commentators say, oh no, Ziba was right, Mephibosheth is just trying to have it both ways here. I don't think he was. If he stayed in Jerusalem, what were the chances that he was going to be king anyway? Absalom would have had him killed straight away. So I think he was deserted and cruelly let down by Ziba. But the interesting thing is his response to the king, isn't he? Because I think David is being quite unjust here. By the way, if you read the story, he's just been very, very generous to another guy who really did stand out against him at the start of the rebellion. I think David was feeling quite good about himself, but feeling, well, I can't be generous to everybody. Who can I really let uh, put the boot in on? Ah, here's my Mephibosheth coming. So I don't think J David was fair at all here. So he's not a picture of God or of Jesus. But I think Mephibosheth is a picture of how we need to respond to our king. You see, it's often been said that your personality is in three parts. There's your mind, there's your will, and there's your emotions. Now, all three of those things are important in the way you follow Jesus. With Mephibosheth, I think you can see that, first of all, his mind was focused on the king. He wouldn't let himself forget the king. He spent time thinking about the king every day. First moment when he woke up in the morning, and thought before he got out from under the blankets, why do I feel so icky? Why is my beard so long? Oh yes, it's because David is over there fighting in the desert. Physically, he just reminded himself again and again that he belonged to the king. That's why it's so important, isn't it, for us to remind ourselves from the very start, right in the, in the beginning, at, in the morning, that we belong to the king and we're going to spend that day focusing our mind on the things that he's concerned about. Winning the battle with him. We can't be everywhere with him all day long. But what we can do is keep our mind focused on him. And the second thing was his will. 
His will was surrendered to the king. When David gave him the shattering pronouncement, Zeba's going to have the lot, you will have nothing. He doesn't protest. It wasn't fair, that's not Didn't you hear what I said? I said it was strict. He just says, look, I don't care. That's all right. Let him have everything. You're home safely. And that's all that matters. Now, that's one of the difficult things to learn as a Christian, isn't it? To allow God to have control of your will. I have a book here on discipleship in which the author uh, talks about uh, an experience that he had. And he, he says this, discipline, discipleship, demands the abandonment of self-preservation. To follow Jesus, we have to get to the point where we understand that doing the will of God is the important issue, not what happens to us. Whether I'm married or single is a huge issue, but it's not the issue. Whether I have children or don't can be equally huge. Whether I'm healthy or unwell is a massive issue, but it's not the issue. Whether I'm wealthy or poor is an issue, will certainly impact my life, but it's not the issue. Whether God asks me to live in Birmingham or Bangladesh will be of great significance, but it's not the issue. And he talks about how once his son was fighting for his life in hospital and he was praying for him. And he says, I'll never forget the wrestling with God. Could I entrust my son to my father's will? Could I at this critical moment say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Or was that just something I repeated in a prayer? Did I only want his will for my life when it suited how I thought life should go? I wasn't able just to hand my son over. I fought, I wept, I complained bitterly. Have I not sought to serve you as faithfully as I could? Have there not been sacrifices I have made for you? I was slipping into entitlement thinking. Didn't God owe me? And he says, it was a long battle in that hospital room to get to that point. When I finally got there, within a short time, the problem was identified and the crisis quickly over. I'm very conscious in writing this that others have got to that point possibly far quicker but uh, than I did, but have not been blessed with a similar outcome because his son got better. I can only trust that my resolve would have remained unchanged if the outcome had been different. Your will, God's will. Mephibosheth's will was set surrendered to the king, whatever it cost him personally. It's a lesson we still need to learn, isn't it? But there's a third area too. His emotions were centred on the king. Let Zeba have the lot. I'm just so glad that you're home again. How can I worry about myself? You are back home. You have not been killed in battle. You're victorious. And if the king is victorious, that's all that matters to me. Who's that guy who wrote the book on discipleship? Well, he just died this week. His name was Peter Maiden. And Peter was a bit special to me because I would never have been an evangelist unless it was for Peter bugging me. <laughs> he was my OM team leader on a mission in Swindon one summer and it really got up my nose that he was 24 years old. Yes, I know, this is back in the age when we were evangelising pterodactyls and stuff like that. But anyway, he was 24, I was 23. <laughs> And uh, I was doing a doctorate at Oxford University and not enjoying a moment of it. He was bombing around in a little red van telling people about Jesus and having a great time. I envied him so much. And he's a guy who said to me, well, do it. If God's calling you into it, just drop everything and follow him. His will comes first. Peter, as I say, has just died this, uh, this week at the age of 72. And uh, it's, he's left behind a tremendous record. Over the last year when he's been really ill with cancer, I've been hearing from friends of mine about how he's doing <laughs> and to my sadness been able to visit him myself and they've all said you know 
he can't do anything very much anymore. He can't walk upstairs. But he just says, I hope I'll live long enough to finish my book on gratitude. <laughs> Isn't that great? When you're facing your own death, just to think about how grateful you are to God is fantastic. And it's wonderful because two days after his death, this very week, that book has been published by IVP. Radical gratitude. And that's the secret, really, of a triumphant Christian life. Allowing God's victories to be your victories. Having so much gratitude to the King who's brought you from the desert, who's put you at his table, who loves you and cares for you, that your emotional life becomes his emotional life. Peter says this in the book, Gratitude can become a way of life as our trust in a sovereign God and our submission to him grows and our worries decrease. If you're struggling with anxiety, uncertainty or discouragement, meditate on these certainties. He'll always be true to his word. His loving kindness and faithfulness will never fail. Allow gratitude for who he is and the fact that he is yours, your father, to flood your heart and wash away the discouragements. Gratitude must become much more than a response to acts of kindness. If we recognise that we live under the care of our sovereign God and Father, who always has our best interests at heart, then the anxiety of epidemic proportions in our society will be challenged by the peace and gratitude of knowing who is in ultimate control. As we face a pandemic, as we face uncertain futures, as we face a world in which people believe vainly they can make themselves anything they want and they're all going to be disappointed. We need to remember that. The king has us at his table. And when we feel grateful for that and we're prepared to let his will be our will, his emotions be our emotions, his mind be our mind, we'll have learned the secret of contentment and happiness. Have a great week. Bye for now.